It's all set. I just didn't set it up beforehand, so I had to do that now. Um, hey, guys, uh, while you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, let me know. Uh, I'm going to let you know some stuff coming up in your near future. Tonight, there's prayer here at church at 630. Um, and I want you there. I want you to pray. Uh, of course, I know you're a praying church because I make you pray every Sunday uh, with each other. Um, but the corporate times of prayer in the church are very important. So please, tonight at 630. Um, the uh, women of our church have joined forces with the women of North Fork Christian Center. And for their next gathering, they'll be meeting together there on the 8th. Right? What time is that going to be at? 6 o'clock at North Fork Christian Center. If you are female, you're invited. Um, there is uh, Easter coming up. Um, on, the, on the calendar, it's marked Easter. That's the day it is. Uh, most calendars also have Good Friday marked on that. We also have a Good Friday service that we're doing with our friends at North Fork Christian Center. And that's going to be on the 15th, Good Friday, um, at 7 p.m. at Town Hall. Remember, remember, when, remember when we had church at Town Hall? We just missed it so much. We wanted to go back. And so at 7 p.m., um, we have a Good Friday service uh, that we're all going to go to together. Sound good? All right, keeping these announcements rolling. I mentioned last week a leadership conference. It's called the Stay True Conference. It's in uh, the Calvary Chapel Oxnard is putting on. It's $20 a person. Don't let that slow you down. If you want to come, we'll make it happen. Um, and I'll, I'll give you the details about how we're going down and where we're staying and things like that. If you come to me and say, I want to go to that conference, then I'll make, I'll make sure there's a, there's a spot for you. That's on April the 30th, and we'll be going down the 29th and going to this conference, and I'm one of the guest speakers, which I'm super nervous about. So um, go ahead and, uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, go ahead and, if you haven't yet, like me, uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to read from verse 6 to verse 13. You can follow along in your own Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul writes, Now these things, brethren, I figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did not receive it, why did you boast as if you had not received it? You are already full. You're already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure, being defamed, we entreat. And we have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. Let's pray once more. Jesus, we want, we want to follow you to where you are because we want your presence. We want to be with you. Um, 
We are not here for any spiritual blessing apart from you, Christ. Uh, We're not seeking any gift from the Father other than that which he has given in his Son. Um, So as as we receive from your word, we pray that we would be growing not just in knowledge of a text, but we would be growing in a relationship with the living word, with the author of this text. We pray as we see uh, just this extent to which our our faith in Christ could lead us. I pray for boldness and for courage and for uh, humility and, and for this clear awareness that Jesus is worthy of it all. He's worthy of everything we could lay down and more, everything we could sacrifice and more. And I pray that the result of this sermon, of this time together as a church, would be men and women seeking hard after Christ, willing and eager even to present ourselves, our bodies, as living sacrifices. This is a reasonable act of service. So we come to you now for your own sake, uh, in order to, to offer what we have, which isn't much, and in order to receive nothing less than Christ and him crucified. Fix our eyes on Jesus, we pray. And it says, in his name we pray, amen. 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 So, um, taking passages like this, uh, you know, verse 6 through 13, in the middle of a chapter, we're aware that this takes place in a a greater context. And 1 Corinthians is is a letter in its entirety. It takes place in the middle of a larger story, just like every other letter that's ever been written. You know, two people know each other and they have some shared experiences, they have a history, and then because they are separated, they write back and forth, hoping to see each other again someday soon. Paul had lived with the Corinthians for 18 months. He knew these people. These were his friends. During that time, he wasn't living his best life now. He he said in chapter 2, verse 3, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. That was Paul living with the Corinthians. He was with them not as a charismatic leader who impressed them with his big fancy words, but rather as a broken man who sounded like a broken record, only ever talking about Jesus and the cross over and over and over again. And they weren't impressed. So that's the relationship that took place before Paul wrote this letter. Paul didn't stay with the Corinthians forever. After those 18 months, he left and and over the passage of time that, that followed, a lot of problems entered into the church. Um, he heard about these problems from where he was in, in Ephesus and, and some people from the church that he knew personally, probably, you know, and in letters, they're writing to him. They, they tell Paul there's some problems. Now, we know that 1 Corinthians really wasn't his first letter he wrote to the church. In chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says, I wrote to you in my epistle, dot, dot, dot. And we're all supposed to go, oh, yeah, we know. We got that letter in the mail. But we don't. We don't have the first 1 Corinthians. We only have the second 1 Corinthians. <laughs> and we know from chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians that the Corinthians wrote back to him, too. And, of course, we don't have those letters. So this letter that we're reading that we call 1 Corinthians is caught in the middle. It's, there's already a relationship that's been established between Paul and the church in Corinth. That relationship is far from over. It's developing and growing, and, and, and we're... We're waiting to see what direction it goes. Paul had been with them. He had written back and forth since they had parted ways. Uh, Now he's sent Timothy, his son in the faith. Uh, He sent Timothy to them. He's planning his next trip to them. He's writing this letter for many reasons, mostly to correct problems, right? We've seen that. But one of the reasons for 1 Corinthians is to pave the way for his next visit. 
He's saying, I'm coming to you soon. What kind of visit do you think that's going to be? If you glance down to the end of the chapter in verse 21, he says, what do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? He's writing these things, hoping that the correction of this letter has its full effect so that when he gets there in person, they wouldn't have more reason to be ashamed. So he's writing a letter in order to correct behaviors so that when they meet, that is a sweet reunion. Now, it is God's mercy on us that he has given us written instructions. In 2 Timothy 2.15, it says that the word of God is profitable for correction, among other things. Now, Jesus, you read about Jesus in the Gospels, and we see a guy who knows how to make a great whip of cords. Aren't you glad he wrote you a letter instead? <laughs> now, Jesus is coming again. We believe he is coming again. He will judge the living and the dead. How we respond to his written instructions, that has an immense bearing on the nature of his return, or rather how we experience this soon and coming Jesus. It is God's mercy that he has given us written instructions, and it is through God's mercy that Paul brings this correction to the Corinthians. Now, you have to understand this spirit of mercy as the force behind Paul's correction, because you could just pick the verses out in 1 Corinthians of all the things that Paul says the church is doing wrong, and you think, Paul is not a very fun guy to hang around, and uh, this is not going to be pretty when they get together. But when you take it in the, the whole of the context of 1 Corinthians, and you see Paul in Acts and spending time with this church, you see that what is driving this letter, the force behind these corrections, is a deep love for the church and a strong, even an unshakable hope in Christ's ability to present this church as a perfect bride. That's the force behind this letter. You have to understand that this this. Mercy is what is on Paul's mind more than just all the problems in the church. Even in the next chapter, chapter five, we get one of their biggest mistakes. It's just a big, ugly problem. And he corrects them harshly. But as I mentioned this last week, you read in 2 Corinthians, Paul clarifies, he says, the only reason I wanted you to correct the sinner was so that you could restore them into fellowship in the church. His heart has always been unity. His heart has always been a pure church that's, that's beautiful. Paul's correction uh, is presented as truth, and it's presented with all the pointy edges still attached, <laughs> but it's presented with grace. As Paul knows that truth without grace will crush people and then cease to be Christian truth. So this letter to the Corinthians is, is very pointed. Um, it's, it's obvious that Paul's bringing some real correction, it's, but it's very important to realize why he's bringing the correction and what the heart is behind his harsh words. So this is what you have to know before we get into Paul's biting sarcasm in this passage. Paul loves the church. Paul loves the Corinthians. He doesn't love the church, just like this idea. Like, yeah, we all love the church. It's just the people that, you know. Yeah, so like Paul, Paul actually loved the people, though. Like one step ahead of us, he loved the Corinthians. He, he says in verse 14 that he says, you're my children. In verse 15, he's going to say, I'm not just your teacher. I'm your father. Uh, in verse 14, which we'll start with next week, he says very clearly, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, to warn you. 
So something you have to know as you read this is that Paul wants the church to be well. He wants it to be whole. He wants it to be mature and strong and capable and spiritually deep. There's this lo- That's a long way from where the church is at this point. But, but if Paul didn't think it was a possibility to get there to that level of maturity, he wouldn't have wasted his time with these 15 chapters. So while we're not the Corinthians, of course, we are indeed and in truth one body with them. This is our church. This is our family. This is our heritage. So Paul's advice and warnings to them are for us to take, and they must be taken in the same spirit, knowing that these are written not for your shame, but to warn with your maturity in mind, with your spiritual health and your success as the goal. The first piece of advice in chapter 4 was in the first five verses, which we covered last week. Paul wanted the Corinthians to think rightly about the apostles. And he said, think of us as servants and stewards of the mysteries of God. He's called himself and Apollos, who was probably their pastor, one of the main teachers in the church. Uh, he, he says that we're servants and stewards, and that's what you need to think of us. That's how you need to think of us. And, and the reason he did this was that not only so that the Corinthians would have an accurate view of the apostles, but so that they would have an accurate view of themselves and their calling within the church. In verse 6, it says, Now these things, that these things he's talking about are the things um, saying that we are servants and stewards. He says these things, the, the, that role of servant, that role of steward, I, I figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sake. We're not actually butlers, we're pastors, but in this house of God metaphor, we're stewards and, and servants. Do you get it? That's how I'm talking. So I transfer these things figuratively to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from one another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? It says, if everything you have is a gift, why are you pretending you invented grace? Like, you can't, you can't live like that. So Paul makes, he makes a few points. He makes three points to cultivate humility and unity in the church. He says, if we, the church leaders, are servants and stewards, then so are you. I, I, I made this word picture so that you can know things. And then he says, if you're all servants, then there's no significant, dif- significant difference between you and the guy that you're not willing to fellowship with. There's no real difference between you and the guy that you're not talking to on Sunday mornings anymore. You're both servants. You work for the same master in the same house for the same objective. So, so if you're servants, then there's no reason for schism and division. And then, thirdly, he says, if you are where you are because someone gave to you, served you, loved you, how can you possibly boast about what you have? That's not what servants do. There's no reason for pride. They have, there, there's no reason for division, which resulted from their arrogance. Do you see how Paul explains this? He says, I want you to see us, the ones that you put on a pedestal, because they were kind of like idolizing this apostolic role there in Corinth. So I want you to see us as servants. That was in verse 1 so that none of you would have any reason to consider yourself as better than another. There was division in the church and cliques and schisms. This is just pride, all ungodly division. It's it's pride. And it's thinking of people too much, that fear of man that we talked about last week, valuing the thoughts and opinions of people too much and thinking of God and the thoughts of God too little. It's pride and arrogance. And the Corinthians thought of their leaders, Paul, Apollos, Peter, etc., as these rock star leaders... So Paul says, no, we're not rock stars, we're farmers. That's what he said in chapter 3, verse 6. He says, we're farmers, that's what we do. 
We're not cult leaders. We are construction workers. That's what he said in chapter 3, verse 10. We're servants. We're stewards, chapter 4, verse 1. Paul is doing the same thing Jesus did in the upper room when he washed the disciples' feet. He didn't do that to show them, look how humble I, Jesus, am. He did it to show them what they were supposed to do. Listen to this passage from John 13. So this is the part of the upper room, um, leading up to the upper room discourse. In John 13, 12 through 17, Jesus says, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Airtight logic. I can follow this. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Okay, I've decided to follow Jesus' example. Good. Okay, that's good Christian stuff. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Oh, I actually have to do it. Oh, no. Jesus says, you know I'm the leader. And they're like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. He's like, okay, this is an example. Okay, example. Follow. I'm... Jesus says, I'm the foot washer. What do you think that makes you? What do you, think, what do you think you're supposed to do then? If I'm the leader, I'm the teacher, I'm the best, I'm the ideal, you follow me and I'm washing feet, where does that put you? Paul said the same thing. He says, I'm a farmer, I'm a builder, I'm a servant and a steward. So is Apollos, so is Peter. What do you think that makes you? What does that mean for you? If these are your leaders, then what does it look like for you to follow them? In light of this truth, how are you guys supposed to treat each other? So Paul says, I've described myself as a servant so that you guys can think of yourselves as servants to each other. And this was written to prevent them from being puffed up. Puffed up. This idea of being puffed up, this is something that Paul uses, talks about elsewhere. It's the words he uses elsewhere. It's a way of saying that they are proud and arrogant, but also really just full of hot air. And... And one of the reasons Paul gives in explaining why they shouldn't be puffed up is when he says, what makes you differ from one another? You're all the same, guys. <laughs> the arrogant among the Corinthians were only able to think of themselves so highly by thinking of others as beneath them. You know, Paul is saying, that's just not true. That's not accurate. You're not seeing the world accurately. You're not different from the people you are dividing from. You're one field. You are one building. You are one house. You are one body. There's never churches. There is one church. Seeing Paul and Apollos on the same team was meant to remind them that they too, in all their little factions and proto-denominations, are on the same team. Another way this lesson is teaching humility and unity to the Corinthians is that if the Corinthians see themselves as the field or the house, which we see in chapter 3, that the church leaders are those in charge of them, then verse 7 rings true and hits hard. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? He's saying, we gave all of you the same thing. What you have spiritually the doctrine that you as a church are standing on, the things that you believe to be true, you received that from the apostles. Why are you bragging about what you have? I gave that to you. Reading this, the Corinthians, hopefully, 
you know, they, they felt pretty dumb. They should have seen how dumb they look right now because they had said, Paul, my, my theology is so good. I don't have to listen to you anymore. I'm a Corinthian. And Paul is saying, you don't know anything that I didn't teach you. Like you're literally using my book. <laughs> they think they've outgrown Paul, that they've come to a place where they can boast about their spiritual maturity. And Paul's saying, all you have came from me. You don't get to brag about that. And in a greater sense, all you have came from the Lord, your master. So you don't get to look at his other servants and pretend like you're better than they are. The moment you dare consider yourself as better than someone else because you're smarter, because you're more skilled, because of whatever, realize that everything you have that makes you think you're so great, that's not your stuff. That's the Lord's stuff. And he never intended to give you those good gifts just so you can feel good about yourself and look down your nose at someone else. He's given you your gift so that you can serve people. And this is going to be a major theme later in Corinthians when Paul talks about the gifts that are given to each for all. Now, before we get into the next paragraph, I want to address something from verse 6 that I don't understand. Um, Paul, says, Paul says that he doesn't want the Corinthians to think beyond what is written. Now, this passage isn't very clear, so when I say I want to address it, I really just want you to know that no one really agrees on what Paul's talking about. Um, what we want this verse to mean is that Paul wants the Corinthians to be biblical, right? He wants them to go back to the written scripture and not add to that. That's all well and good, and we should all be biblical people. It's not really fitting with the immediate context, though. He could be saying, I don't want you to go beyond what I literally just wrote in the previous sentence, that we're servants and stewards. Um, that doesn't really seem to fit either. Uh, I tend to think he's referring to the previous letter, the one that we don't have. Uh, it's possible that Paul's Paul wrote something about this issue of servanthood and stewardship before and is now further explaining it through metaphor and word pictures, calling himself a farmer and a builder and a servant and a steward. And he's doing this thoroughly so that they don't go beyond this. They don't exaggerate the position of church leader or apostle. They don't have any out for saying, yeah, but like our pastor is real cool. And so that's the pedestal I want to be on when I, you know, he's saying, no, you can't go beyond what I wrote. Don't do that. Um, if that's how you read it, then to think beyond what is written is just another way of saying, I don't want you to add unnecessary honor and prestige to people who are really just servants because that's messing your church up. What was written was probably something about humility and the tendency towards spiritual pride that's going beyond what was written. Now, let's see how far they wanted to go beyond because they did. They were picking up speed to go beyond whatever was written. In verse 8, he says, oh, you're already full. You're already rich. You've reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign that we also might reign with you. You have to read this with all the intended irony, okay? There's no other way. You can't get into the words and be like, okay, so they're full. Well, what are they full of? Um, you know, I think that's what Paul is, is kind of getting to. Paul is mocking them because they are like little children. They're immature. They're weak. They're poor, blind, and needy. And they're saying, I all grown up now. You know, and Paul is saying, oh, sure, sure you are. Yeah. So when he says, you're already full, we see the attitude that the Corinthians had. It was not one of hunger and thirst. Hunger and thirsting after righteousness. It was not one of saying, I am needy and I need what Christ has to give. It was, it was an attitude of self-satisfaction. I'm full. I have enough. He says, you're already rich. They were not the blessed poor in spirit to whom belongs the kingdom of heaven. 
But that's okay with them because they already consider themselves kings of something. He says, you've reigned as kings without us. And those last words, without us, are important because Paul is telling them your spiritual pride and your self-satisfied attitude it has nothing to do with the apostles and shepherds of the church. You say, I'm of Paul or I'm of Apollos. Let me tell you, those guys are of a different kingdom than you are. You're reigning by yourself over there without us. Especially when you act like that. The Corinthians are resembling those Laodiceans who said they, they, were, they were full and they had need of nothing. And Christ writes to them and says, I wish you would say you were poor, because then we could talk. That's a paraphrase, of course, the Talmonian version of the Bible. Um, but Paul says, you're already full, you're already rich, you have reigned as kings. He's pointing out their weakness, their faults. We should never find ourselves in a place where we say, well, that's enough Jesus for this lifetime. All full up, don't need any more. We should never say, oh, all the heavenly blessings in Christ, every spiritual blessing? No, I think I've had quite enough. Thank you. <laughs> Give it to that next guy that I've been praying for on Sunday mornings. You know, like, I have arrived. Spiritual maturity is mine and all that goes with it. Time to reign like a king over the poor world that is not as spiritual as I. This, this is not the attitude of the apostles. This is not the attitude that they handed down. Remember, Paul, at the end of his life, he said, I've not yet attained. He says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. You know what happens when you're poured out? You're empty. And they're saying, you guys are full? Why? Our discipleship, our spiritual growth, it's a process that will not end in this lifetime. And as such, our attitude towards spiritual things ought to be more, Lord, I am poor, I am blind. We should always be saying, fill me up instead of I am full. Or if you think you're full, because let's face it, there are times when the blessings of God are more than we feel we can take. Uh, his generosity certainly exceeds your capacity, right? Well, then we pray with the psalmist in Psalm 119.32, enlarge my heart, make the container bigger then. If this is all I can take, make the container bigger, fill me up and then fill me up again. John Chrysostom, one of the most prolific writers and preachers among the early church fathers, he, he taught... Uh, through verse by verse, just like you get here, uh, <laughs> through scripture, and he wrote on scripture and preached scripture in the fourth century. And when he taught through this passage in Corinthians, he said that true piety or holiness, you know, true God-fearing religion, he said it is an insatiable thing. Meaning if you want God, you'll never be satisfied because there's always going to be more of him than you have. If you think you've had enough of God, it's not God that you have. You're satisfied with something smaller. So Chrysostom, he writes, he says, piety is an insatiable thing, and it takes a childish mind to imagine from just the beginnings that you have attained the whole. And for men who are not even yet in the prelude of a matter to be high-minded as if they had laid hold of the end, that's what he says of these Corinth the Corinthians. They're like children, and they're so proud of their maturity. And then Paul says, I wish, I wish these, this was true of you. I wish you were kings of the right kingdom. I wish you did reign that we might reign with you. Now, of course, Paul wishes his children would grow up. They're old enough now. They kind of need to get going with their lives. He wishes that they were maturing in the faith and taking ownership of the things that God had stored up for them, that they were learning that, that, that sacrifice is maturity that you getting to a place where you are willing to be poured out for the good of others, that is maturity. 
It's not what you have, it's what you've given. Paul wishes they would grow up because then Paul would be able to share in their joy. But they just weren't there. Now, we are called kings and priests. That's what the scriptures say. Jesus tells a parable of three servants who are entrusted with various amounts of money, stewards, like Paul says he is, the parable of the talents. I'm sure you're familiar with it. And the one who was faithful with his 10 talents was then placed in charge of 10 cities. Paul is wishing that the Corinthians had been faithful with small things so that they could reign, so that they could be entrusted with much. But instead, the Corinthians were dividing from one another and thereby showing themselves to be faithless. They were proving themselves to be disqualified to rule rather than seeking the good things from God that come from faithfulness. They were working for their own goals, each as his own master, at the expense of the church and its unity. In Proverbs 18, Proverbs 18.1, it says that a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. In a way, each faction within the church was isolating itself from others, seeking its own desire, seeking to have rather than to give, to be filled up rather than to be poured out. And as such, those ones, those ones that were, would isolate themselves, seeking their own, were raging against all wise judgment, which is why you need a corrective letter like Corinthians. It's easy to be king when your entire kingdom exists of yourself. And that was rapidly becoming the disintegrated Corinthian church. So Paul mocks them as only Paul can. He says, you're full, you're rich, you're kings. And then he says, I wish. And then from verse 9 through 13, we get this sobering description where Paul compares these self-appointed kings with the real leaders of the church. The contrast is stark. He says, For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both the angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure, being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. Paul is saying, again, you're kings. Oh, okay. Totally different kingdom. Different citizenship here, guys. This is what life in leadership looks like, according to Paul. This is what it looks like to be an apostle. And that he says it is God's will that the most notable thing about the apostles is their weakness and their suffering, a humility so extreme it can be witnessed by heaven and earth. He says there are angels scratching their heads, wondering why God's number one guys are homeless people. They don't get it. He says, yep, I don't get it either. <laughs> he lists the sufferings they endure as a way of asking the proud, self-satisfied Corinthians, are you sure you're following us? Are you sure? Are you sure you're with us? Does your walk look anything like the faith handed down to you from the apostles? What Paul shows the Corinthians here is that leadership, apostleship, this servanthood that he's been talking about for the last chapter or so, was merely a willingness to lay aside every weight or hindrance and every personal right or personal comfort or personal preference for the call of Christ. He tells the Philippians when he writes to them that he would count all things as rubbish, that he would gain Christ. 
And we see that the other apostles follow the same rule. They laid aside their right for food, water, clothing, safety, homes. This is not only the opposite of, of, of the path the Corinthians had set themselves on in their hopes to attain supremacy, but it is at utter odds with all the wisdom of the entire world in every age. This is the foolishness that Paul has been claiming for himself and for all those who cling to the cross. Because those who cling to the cross set all things aside so that Christ is first. He says, we are men condemned to death. Now, Paul had a unique experience where the Lord showed him the things he would suffer for Christ's sake. At Paul's conversion, Jesus showed him the things that he would suffer. We don't all get that vision. Thank you, Lord. Okay? But Paul was a man condemned to death. He knew how it ended. He, he knew where this was headed. I mean, depending on how you read in Acts chapter 14, when they stone him and leave him for dead outside, a lot of people say Paul had already died once. So like he's getting good at this. And he says, I live like a man condemned to death. All the apostles died martyrs death except John. And it wasn't for lack of opportunity. And, and Jesus told his disciples that they would suffer. He told them they would indeed drink the cup that he was given. And Paul was told shortly after his conversion, all the things that he would suffer for Christ. So you have these apostles, they're, they're men walking around with the death sentence already on them. They were expecting martyrdom. And so they could live like true martyrs in life. The word martyr really just means witness. And the apostles witnessed Christ and him crucified. They witnessed him in life and they, witnessed, they were witnesses for him in their death. While in life, the apostles were fools. They were weak. They were dishonored. Eventually, they were killed. They became outcasts of society. Their faith had very real, tangible consequences that the Corinthians were not willing to entertain. <laughs> Verse 11 says that they were hungry, thirsty, poorly clothed, beaten, and homeless. That's what following Jesus got them. They were neglected, not just by the world, which could be expected, but by the churches too. In verse 12, he says that they worked with their own hands because the churches would not support missionaries and apostles financially. So what was their response? What was the apostles' response? What was the response of these neglected disciples? Halfway through verse 12, he says, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. And here we have the true marks, not only of the apostles, but of spiritual maturity. The Corinthians, these little babies that were so proud that they could put their shoes on half time, the right shoe on the right foot. You know, Paul's saying, this is what, this is what grown-ups do here, you guys. You don't lash out against your leaders, the apostles and the teachers. You don't divide and say, we're the best because we're the smartest or anything like that. No, no, you die every day and you keep doing that until you die for good. That's what you do. The Corinthians, like the disciples in Jesus' day, they cared about who was the greatest. They got into this fight all the time, right? And they would try to be the greatest and try to be seen as the greatest. And, and Paul, like Jesus, paints a very different picture of what greatness is. Jesus says, the greatest among you is a servant. And Paul unpacks this idea and says, the greatest of you is the one who can bless the ones who mock you. That's the greatest. The greatest among you is the one who endures persecution. See, it wasn't just suffering for suffering's sake that qualified the apostles. It wasn't, you know, the one with the most scars gets the most points or something. It was that in the midst of sharing Christ's sufferings, they were also able to share in Christ's mercy and Christ's generosity and love their enemies and bless those who persecuted them and pray for those who spitefully use them. 
Paul and, and John rarely sound alike, very different styles, right? But you've, if you've been with us through the study in John's gospel and his epistles, you can see that they're very different tones set by these different uh, writers. But you can see that the same priorities, there's the similar um, understanding of spiritual maturity. Who's the greatest? The servant. What makes you a great disciple of Jesus? Loving one another, right? John's one hit wonder. I'm sure we need to hear this as much as the Corinthians did. I'm sure of it. I'm sure that we still wrestle with the same temptations that the Corinthians did. To be first, to be best, to be above others. Our flesh recoils at the idea of being a servant. Certainly to the extent that Paul describes here. We don't want to be hungry, thirsty, mocked, or persecuted. But spiritual maturity is known most clearly in the ability to endure and forgive and love and bless in the face of these kinds of oppressions. Now, the main topic Paul is addressing is the pride and arrogance of the Corinthians. And he's, he's contrasting their uh, false sense of superiority, because they're not really superior, to the apostles' actual superiority seen in humble service. If the correction Paul is bringing stings a little, let that rebuke in, because the word of God is profitable for correction. But the lesson here is much wider than just one of spiritual pride. This somewhat horrifying picture of what life as an apostle looks like addresses every kind of misunderstanding of what spiritual maturity is. Again, we should all want to be mature, just like Paul wanted for the Corinthians. We should want to reign with Christ. We should want to grow up into the fullness of the stature of Christ. We should desire spiritual health and spiritual depth and spiritual maturity. But let us be sure to realize what this spiritual maturity is. Spiritual maturity is, one, this kind of willingness to lay it all down for Christ. And two, this kind of love for others even and especially those who mock, those who are against us, those who would be our enemies. I mentioned how Corinthians is written from a place of love and mercy and the Corinthians' best interest in mind. That itself is a, a visible representation of the mercy of God because the Corinthians were not treating Paul well. They were not speaking of Paul well. Paul was hearing all the bad things that they were saying about him, and he writes to them as children and writes to them in order to bring them back to a place of health. That's spiritual maturity. 1 Corinthians brings us these lessons of humility because 1 Corinthians is part of Paul's ministry of knowing nothing but Christ and him crucified. How can we think we're better than others if the one who is best washed feet and then died for sinners? How can we get caught in the trap of arrogance and divisions when we realize that God who gave up everything to save us has now given us everything we have? The antidote to the Corinthians' problem was Christ and him crucified. It was the gospel of the, the Jesus that they needed, not the Jesus that they imagined. It was the gospel of Christ that they needed. And as you recognize that longing in your soul for the same thing, please know that this desire for God himself is insatiable. You'll be wanting more of him for as long as you live. How do you get there? How do you scratch that itch? Go the way of the cross. Go to, way, to where Jesus is, washing the feet. There's more than enough room in the servants' quarters. And Jesus will be happy to welcome you there. 
Let's pray. Oh, Father, we worship you and we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. It is by his blood and his righteousness that we come thanking you for making a way for the, us to be forgiven, thanking you that everything we have, all we have needed, your hand has provided. We praise you. Great is your faithfulness, Lord. I ask your blessing to be on this church. And again, I pray that your blessing on this church would be nothing less than the one great blessing of Christ himself. Let us have fellowship with the Son of God. Transform us from glory to glory, not into some best version of ourselves, but transform us into the image of your Son. God, take us from where we are, um, not just to uh, the next best thing, but fully transfer us into the kingdom of the Son of your love. We want Christ, and we want to keep on wanting Christ. Fill us up and then enlarge our hearts to give us more capacity for him. Bless your church in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Please stand. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You are sent, ladies and gentlemen, to make disciples of all nations. Yep.